God, the Heidelberg Catechism being one of those. That what is your only comfort in life and in death is that I'm not my own, but I'm bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Where others, the Westminster and our Baptist Confession of Faith, have started with Scripture. And both of those are good options and good ways to go. But today we're going to start to look at the first chapter of the Confession of Faith and in paragraph one. Now we're going to try to do this in four lessons um, to try to keep on track with doing the confession in a year. Um, But if you guys want to know any more, please tell us. Today we're going to be going through paragraph one, and next week we're going to be going through paragraph two, three, four, and five, talking about canonicity. Um, How do we know that the books that we have in the Bible are the books that we should have in the Bible? And we'll go through that next week. So, just to briefly outline this chapter. Um, We have ten paragraphs here. And I'm using Samuel Waldron, who is the professor in my seminary, and his outline of this text. And it goes, in chapter one, we have the necessity of Holy Scripture. In chapters 2 and 3, we have the identity of Holy Scripture, both negatively and positively. In paragraphs 4 and 5, we have its authority. In paragraph 6, its sufficiency. In paragraph 7, its clarity. In paragraph 8, its availability. And in the last two paragraphs, 9 and 10, we have the finality of Holy Scripture. That is, for scriptural interpretation and for religious questions in general. Okay? So, as we start today, we're looking at the necessity of Holy Scripture, and I just want to read for us this first paragraph, and starting with this first sentence, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule for all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, right? Now, as we go through that, we notice that the Scripture that's talked about here is the Holy Scripture. It's not any writings of man. It's not any other writings of man than what we find in the Bible. The 66 books that we have in the Old and New Testament. And the Confession calls these the Holy Scripture. These are the only words delivered by God through men. As God moved men, apostles and prophets, to write the words of God through His Holy Spirit, He gave the Scriptures. Now, the Scripture here is talked about as the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge. So, we'll just start there. The Scripture is the only sufficient rule for all saving knowledge. When we think about sufficiency, okay, what comes to mind is that we have enough and we have what we need. And we've given the example before, I think, when we've gone through sufficiency in our doctrine of the church. But if I gave Joey, let's say, $5 to run to get bread at the store, and he used his bike, that would be sufficient for the task that I gave him. But it would also be sufficient, and maybe we could say super sufficient, to give Joey $100 and have him to go to the store to get bread. Now... The reason I bring that up is because when we view sufficiency in Scripture, we can sometimes think, and rightly so, well, the Holy Scripture is always sufficient, so when the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses was written, was not that sufficient. We say, yes, it's absolutely sufficient. 
But now that we have the completed canon, the 66 book of the Bible, books of the Bible, we have a, a super sufficiency and a super clarity. The people of the Old Testament had everything that they needed for sure, but we have abundantly more than we could all than everything we could ask or think. And so as we think about the sufficiency of Scripture, what text do we think of? Brother. Second Timothy. Ooh, see, now I, I, you might be talking about something different than what I'm talking about, brother. Right, 3, 15 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. As we see the Scripture as being sufficient, and the only sufficient source for these things, we have this explicitly stated by Paul in maybe the last letter that he wrote to the apostle, or to the small a apostle Timothy, Pastor Timothy, and he says this. Notice in verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Right? So, it's very important for us to see this. That when Paul is preparing Timothy for his death, and trying to set the church up for the time to come, he points him to one sufficient rule. And that's the Holy Scripture. He doesn't call Timothy to go and seek prophets. He doesn't call Timothy to go seek dreams. He says, be a man of the Word. It can equip you for every good work. It is a sufficient thing. But, not but, but on top of that, it is not only a sufficient Word, but it's also a certain and infallible Word. Now, it's interesting... I listened to a lecture this week talking about the word certain here. And the way that it was used in the 16th century, especially in religious documents, is it means almost identically what we mean by inerrant. Okay, So some have accused the Westminster Catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the 1689 of not teaching inerrancy but infallibility. Okay, But this word certain means that it is inerrant, and infallible. And the question is, what's the difference between those two things? What's the difference between inerrant and infallible? Joe. Sure. Sure. And the way I've heard it described, and we're going to get to the scope of inerrancy and infallibility, but infallible means that it cannot err, okay? And inerrant is very close that it, it does not and it will not err, okay? Has no error in it and it cannot err. It's a, it's a way of strengthening the term here. It's certain, it's sure, yes. I would say that it would be 
it would be both, but it's not directly connected to either of those two things. All right? The reason why we can't add to it is because, as I would argue, we have no, no office of the church that is authorized to add to Scripture today. Okay? Um, but that's another argument that we're going to get to. Um, but we, we see that the Scripture is not only sufficient, it's everything we need, it's certain and it's infallible. Okay? We can go to the Word of God with every confidence that what it says is true. Now, what Brother Joey said is very important. Some would say, because you'll notice, that the Scripture is sufficient, certain, and infallible, the rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Okay? Now, that's absolutely true because what the Bible principally teaches is what we are to believe concerning God and what duty we have, what duty we have to Him. Okay, But that does not mean that scientific facts recorded in the Scripture are inaccurate or fallible. Right? Some would say that what the Bible says about what we are to believe about God and the duty we have ethically is all true and infallible, but what it says about the age of the earth, whatever it might be, those things are unsure. Okay? That the Bible can be scientifically inaccurate and fallible while being infallible in these religious ways. But that's, that's certainly not true. Because that would take away our whole doctrine of infallibility and inerrancy. Whatever the Bible affirms to be true is true. Okay? So the scope of inerrancy and certainty is everything that the Bible claims to be true. Okay? And nothing else. Nothing short of that. But... The sufficiency of Scripture, Scripture is not omnisufficient, okay? What do I mean by that? Well, the Scripture is not sufficient as a, a math textbook or a mechanics guide, right? If I, if I went to my mechanic at Tuffy, that's where I usually go, and the man there that works on my car says, I fixed your brakes today and I used nothing but the Bible to do it. I'd be skeptical about... Uh, the job he might have done on my breaks, right? But for everything, all questions of faith and knowledge about God, everything that we need to know of how to live before Him, it is in the Holy Scriptures. It is contained in the words of the Bible. And this first sentence is actually added by the Baptists and is not contained in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it's not because the Westminster doesn't believe this, but the Baptists um, were accused of being Anabaptists primarily, Okay? They're accused of, of inviting spirits in to speak to them, much like the Quakers on the continent. And so because of that in Roman Catholicism, the Baptists sought good to add this first, this first paragraph in. And so we should see that the Scripture is the only sufficient rule of saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And that's the general principle of this text. That is, the Scripture is necessary for us. Because it is the only rule, it's the only measurement by which we can go and know infallibly and certainly what we are to do and how we're to live, right? But, the reason why Scripture must be looked to in Scripture alone is because there's competing revelation giving, okay? What I mean by that is God does not only communicate Himself through the Holy Scripture, through the writings that we can hold in our hand, but he also communicates himself through nature. That's why our confession says, although 
the light of nature and the works of creation and providence, okay, do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient. This revelation of God is not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Okay? So, we are confronted with the reality that God reveals Himself through not only the Scripture, but He reveals Himself through creation. And it's a wonderful thing that this is true, and the Bible speaks wonderfully and gloriously and majestically about how God reveals Himself in nature. What text can we think of? God reveals Himself through nature. Romans 1. Where else did I hear? Psalm 19. Let's turn to Psalm 19. And what I want us to see is that revelation from nature is an extraordinary revelation. Not something we should set aside. Psalm 19 The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. So, I just want us to consider what the psalmist is saying here. That when we look at the heavens, they're not silently and hiding the glory of God, that if you really study them in an intricate way, you might find the glory of God there. They declare it to all of creation. Just like any preacher that would stand in any pulpit declares to you the Word of God, the heavens declare God's glory to us. Clearly. The sky proclaims, again, this word of absolute clear and not hidden proclamation proclaims His handiwork. And to add to that, notice the language. Day-to-day pours out speech. It's not stingy with it, right? It pours out speech about God's glory. And more than that, in verse 3, there's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. That is, it's universal. It goes to all men, regardless of their spiritual condition, right? And as we've talked about before, even a blind man, They can't see God's heavens. A deaf man, they can't hear the sounds that is in creation. He knows his own heart. He knows what it's like to be a creation. He is man, right? And so he has even the glory of God revealed to him in that. So, what does nature reveal to us? God's divine nature and power from Romans chapter 1, right? God's divine nature... And power. And we see this in Romans chapter 1. Now, we see God's divine nature and power because of the sheer scope and magnitude of what God has created. By the the beauty, the intelligence, and the wisdom undergirding God's creation. Nobody can look at this world and say, God doesn't reveal Himself. Nobody can. Even though they do. They're without excuse because it's clearly revealed. Okay? Reveals God's divine nature, His glory. What, what is God's... We've looked at what creation reveals. What does His providence reveal? 
So, not only that God made all things, but he holds all things together. He directs all things. What does his providence reveal to us? His goodness. What what text do we think of? God's goodness being revealed in his providence. Romans 8.28. Yeah, absolutely. Especially towards his elect. But what about to the whole world? What can every man and woman look at in God's providence and say he's good? The rain. Yeah, yeah. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus Christ preaching. And he says in verse 43, You have heard it said that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus points to God's works in providence. For he makes the sunrise, his sunrise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And maybe we could further clarify that with Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14 As Paul and Barnabas are preaching at Lystra, and you recall the scene, they're preaching and they heal a man to show the power and the grace of the gospel to heal sinners. And these pagans, they think, oh, well, Paul is Zeus. Or wait, Paul is uh, Mercury or Hermes, and Barnabas is Zeus, and they bring out animals to sacrifice to them, right? This is what Paul responds with in verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So that's creation. Verse 16 is providence. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without Witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Every time a human being's heart is satisfied with food and gladness, anything good that happens to us in providence, it's God revealing his goodness to his creation. And the reason man can't see that is not because his revelation is not clear, it's because men's hearts are exceedingly dark and wicked. So, He reveals himself, creation, providence, and I would say also in conscience of man. In the conscience of man. Okay, every man's conscience. Uh, Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We see the clearest attestation of this that I'm aware of at least. Um, Notice in verse 12. Paul says, for all who have sinned without the law, that's the Gentiles, the pagans, will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, that is, they don't have it written down, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ 
Jesus. Every man in this world, whether they've heard the gospel or they've had the scripture or not, they have in their conscience the moral law written on them. Now, it can be defaced and defiled, but every man knows God through his conscience that there's a judge, not just that he's good, not that just he's powerful, he has a divine nature, but that he's judge. And we see this even clearer in Romans chapter 1. At the end, Paul says, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Romans chapter 1 is talking about the pagan nations. Paul says they know. They know God's righteous decree. Okay? So, I want to impress upon our minds today from the confession that general general revelation reveals much about God. Much about us, much about what God requires of us even. But it is not sufficient. It's not certain. And it is not an infallible way of showing us the way to salvation. Okay? In fact, it cannot reveal salvation to us. It shows nothing of God's mercy in creation. Nothing of His eternal mercy. Yes, brother. Hmm? Yeah, it shows, it shows God's patience and kindness. It shows God's patience and kindness. But man, through creation, has no reason to believe that God will accept his repentance. Okay? He requires perfect, perpetual obedience. Okay? That's why men have always created idols. Because they they need to make a God that will ease their conscience. A God that will accept their impartial deeds and their bad works. A God that they can atone for their own sin to. Okay? Creation does not reveal this. We must have special revelation. But, special revelation is not only what is in Holy Scripture. So, notice... Because of this general revelation and its insufficiency, it's not able to mediate the gospel to us... Therefore, in God's grace and kindness to us, okay? He didn't have to give it, but He did. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and diverse manners to reveal Himself and declare that His will unto His church and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the mouths of Satan, and the world to commit the same unto holy writing. But I want us to see, it pleased the Lord at various times, and sundry times, and in diverse ways, to reveal His way to His church. Okay? What are some of the diverse ways that God revealed His will to His church? Not Scripture. Dreams? Jacob? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, lots, right? Angels? Absolutely. Absolutely. Prophecy? It's not the inscripturated word. We're talking about Holy Scripture. Okay? So... Tongues being related to prophecy, and we'll get to that if we have time. Yes. Um, But, prophecy. 
the, the spoken word of God. Okay? All, all these things God chose to do at sundry times. Right? We have diverse manners and we have sundry times. It was not a constant throughout all of redemptive history that these things took place. Okay? In, in fact, there was no special revelation. Well, I should, I should say, there was no special revelation in, in the interadvental period. Okay? No prophet rose up in that time. And in fact, it's very clearly stated by Jewish writers that I can read to you if we have time, okay? Um, that Josephus, um, in the book of Maccabees, which is an intertestamental book, they did not believe and they thought that there was no prophet in Israel at that time, that the spirit of prophecy had been taken away, okay? But God chose at these sundry times to do these things and to work through miracles to the people, Okay? But, God did all of these miracles and showed himself in all of these ways. This is what I'm proposing to you today. Always with the goal of it being inscripturated. Okay? God always gave these different forms of revelation and dreams and prophecies and all these things in order for it to be written down for his church. And that's what's meant here by this later part. And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, he wrote it down in Holy Scripture. Because we're so weak, the world attacks us, the flesh attacks us, and the devil attacks us, we can obscure the words of God that have been given to us and that we have heard. And God, knowing this, and for our good, wrote it down in Holy Scripture. Okay? But the question is, what does the afterward mean? Right? He revealed himself in many ways, but afterward... Afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, he wrote it down. And I would say to you, in these different sundry times, God always wanted to have these things written down. Let's say with the book of, books of Moses, right? The first five books of Moses. It was accompanied by lots of prophecy. Moses himself being a prophet of a special order, okay? Lots of prophecy, lots of divine revelation, lots of signs were given to the people during this time, Right? But they had no written word for 1,500 years, or for, what's the, what's the math here, like 3,000 years, something like that, right? From the creation of the world until Moses wrote the first five books of Moses, there was no written revelation given during that time, okay? No written revelation. And we have record in Scripture that that caused the people of Israel to forget the law of God, and so it had to be written down. All right. So, God revealed himself in all of these ways, but afterward, in the days of Moses, for the better preserving of the truth, and to guard against the corruption of the church's enemies, he had the same written down in Holy Scripture. And what I'm proposing to you today is that it was always in the mind of God and the purpose of God to have those things written down for the better preserving of truth. We see the same thing in the prophets, don't we? Throughout the prophetic dispensation from the time of Moses until the end of Malachi, we have different periods and times where signs are given to the church, great prophecies are given to the church, but it was always for the goal of having those things written down. And that's why in the New Testament, Paul and the apostles are always pointing the people of God back to the scriptures that were given for us. That's why Jesus Christ himself says in John chapter 10 that the scripture cannot be broken. And when he goes against the scribes and Pharisees, he's always quoting from Moses and the prophets. 
Yeah. That's right. That, that, that's exactly right, brother. And that's a good time to look at that. In 2 Peter chapter 1, as Peter saw the most astounding kind of revelation given to him, Notice in verse 19, after he talks about the transfiguration, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And then he says, to which you will do, way, <laughs> to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. What is the thing that we're supposed to pay attention to in that passage? Well, he goes on to talk about Scripture, but he's referring to the prophetic word in particular, right? We do well to pay attention to the prophetic word that's been written down for us. It's good for us to do so. And God, for the better preserving of the truth, put these things together. And I just want to read a couple of Scriptures um, that show this better preserving of the truth. We have a couple of examples of this. What we... In 1 Timothy 3.14, Paul says this. These things I write to you. Okay? So, why does Paul, instead of speaking to Timothy, right? Why does he write them down? Why does he inscripturate the things he's talking about? He says, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. So, Paul is going to speak to him. He knows he's going to. But he's going to write something down for a particular purpose. But if I am delayed, I write to you so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul wrote the scriptures that he wrote for the better preserving of the truth, and the better propagating of them, right? Now, not only can Timothy say, well, I think that Paul told me this at a particular time, we have a copy of the scriptures that can be copied down again and passed on to the churches. We have the same thing in 2 Peter 1.12, where Peter writes this, he says, Therefore I always intend to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth, and I think it right as long as I am in the body to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus made clear to me, I will make every effort so that after my departure you will be able at any time to recall these things. Why does Peter write down the words we have in 2 Peter 1? It's so that through Scripture, not just through the spoken word, we'd have a better comfort, a more sure established truth. Same thing's true in the Old Testament. I'll just read one, one verse. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 18. The law says, And it shall be when he sits on the throne, that is the king of Israel of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from, one, uh, from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord and be careful to observe all the words of his law and the statutes. It was good for the king to write down God's words, not just hear them, because it, it made for a better preserving of the truth. Okay, A more sure comfort for the people of God, okay? So, my proposal here at the ending of this chapter that it makes the Holy Scripture most necessary because 
those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people are now being ceased. Okay? If it is God's goal to have Scripture for the better preserving of the truth, okay, that the apostles and prophets, the writings of the Old and New Testament or the foundational structure, and God has given us writing, and it was always His purpose to give us a written Word of God. And those other ways are ceased. If we have a closed canon, then we ought to see the Scripture is absolutely necessary, and the sole thing that we go to as a rule for all saving faith and practice. Now, um, I'm happy to talk more about the ceasing of the miraculous and the gifts uh, and we'll, we'll have opportunity to do that. But I'd recommend, I read this book this week by Sam Waldron, To Be Continued or The Miraculous Gifts for Today. It's very well put together. I don't know if I agree with everything he says, but it, it certainly makes you think about things that are very important. And I, I would commend that to you if you want to borrow it. Um, do we have any questions or thoughts? Okay, I'm going to pray for us. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son. We thank you for this day. And we we do pray, God, that you would have us to see the necessity of Scripture. Um, That it would be the one rule, the sole rule that we look to. And God, that we'd be worshiping you and rejoicing in you. That you, you were pleased to put down in writing everything that we need. For all faith, all saving obedience to you. Um, and that you would be glorified in all the ways that you promised.